Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is... Mr. Cory Voder-Nockreiner, officially. Mr. Cory Voder-Nockreiner. As you might have guessed, on this episode, with only eight days left until Election Day in the United States... Wow, good... F- I, I just gotta comment on your future calculus. People don't realize you're doing this ahead of the time, so you had to think about those days based on published day. Well done. I've... Your maths are very impressive. I've got a calendar open on my cell phone that I'm looking at right now and counting out the days as I talk. But I mean, yes, my maths is perfect. Oh, take it away. <laughs> on today's episode... Millennial calculator generation, I guess. Yeah, it. exactly. My teacher said I would never, ever have a calculator or anything handy every time I needed it, so I had to learn all this. Now it's bogus. I've got a cell phone in my pocket everywhere I go. Uh, on today's episode, though, we're taking a stab at election security, talking about what you need to and what you don't need to worry about for this upcoming U.S. presidential election. With that, let's go ahead and, I don't know, vote on in. Drop our ballots into the episode. Ooh. So the U.S. presidential election is just one week away now, or I guess eight days if you're listening to this episode on the day it came out, as you should be. Uh, And election security has been a pretty major topic this year with concerns both of potential voting fraud and of foreign election interference running rampant. And some of those concerns were partially validated last week when the director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, announced that both Iran and Russia had had obtained voter registration data from several states. Uh, and potentially use that data against individuals. So this week, we decided to take on election security and cover a few topics from hacking voting machines to hacking people and just have a discussion on our take on exactly what you need to worry about potentially and what you really don't need to worry about. And so to start with, I guess let's start with that story from last week where Iran and Russia successfully hacked several state and local governments to obtain voter registration and other personal data from individuals. And the FBI director, Chris Wray, went so far as to say Iran's intelligence organization used that information to target Floridian and Alaskan Democratic voters with emails that claimed to be from the white nationalist group Proud Boys, threatening them with violence if they didn't vote for Trump. Uh, And also last week, the security firm Trustwave identified an additional 186 million voter registration records for sale on an underground forum. So voter registration data from some states is actually public. Like Corey and I are based out of Washington. Uh, In Washington state, you can request all voter registration data. All you have to do is basically check a checkbox saying, yes, I'm a Washington resident. It doesn't include huge amounts of PII, but it does include some information that could name and address. Uh, Things it won't include are things like date of birth and social security number and stuff like that. But but at least name and address is typically and sometimes the party you vote for. But more often than not, even with the public voter registration states, they don't include email addresses, which means that the attackers potentially paired this up themselves, maybe with other breaches they got a hold of or uh, maybe they obtained them from a less than public source. Maybe they did actually, quote unquote, hack someone. But, but that's it. the big question, right, Mark? I mean, I know in some cases we say they hacked voter registration data. But as I'm reading more about this, they obtained American voter registration data. Does that mean it's new, fresh? Is it any different than the stuff that was obtained in 2016 and, and after? Uh, is it some other leak that has happened? Uh 
and while you know not all states allow the general public to get voter information, some states still allow campaigns and other people. So it doesn't necessarily have to be, in my opinion, unless I I haven't found anything where race had directly we know XYZ state voter registration organization was hacked. I feel like they could have obtained it anyway. Yeah, and I've seen like even in my own uh, perusing through underground hacking forums, like there have been a lot of posts similar to the one that Trustwave linked where people are selling quote unquote stolen voter registration data. But in reality, it's just they are the ones that filled out the form and then got the giant zip blob of all of this. And now they're turning around and trying to sell it, even though it was basically free. Yeah, um, I've seen it like all even, over the forums for sure. Yeah. Like even the the news articles that came out about the Trustwave dump claimed it was from the quote unquote the dark web. Uh, but in reality, it was from a pretty popular uh, hacking forum that is available on the clear web that uh, our team frequents to try and find dumps just like this. Um, so I, it's it's one of those things where it feels like they're making it out to be a bigger deal than it actually is, at least in terms of the data they acquired. Um, now, obviously, there are concerns with how they used that data. Yeah, yeah and by the way, I, I, I think having this data, even though sometimes it's public, is still an issue. There's a lot you can do, especially if you get email address and you know the the party affiliation. So I'm not saying the data is not valuable. I just, as we talk about election hacking, there's a big difference between breaching a voter, the, the state's voter registration organization, and getting data that's publicly accessible by many people. So I just want us to be very careful to, you know, the media uses hack pretty profusely in situations that we may not really consider a technical hack anyways. So I, I just wish I knew know about the date, you know, how old this voter is it? Is it literally 2020, 2019 data? Is it related to other leaks? And it, it's still hard to say from the what I've read of Ray's release. But it's still valuable for them, no matter what. It's what they're using this data to do that's interesting. Yeah, and so like, what are some of the implications of like this stolen data, or even just not even stolen data, but just acquired data? Like, obviously, we saw that they're launching uh, basically spoofed emails, or at least emails claiming to be from some more like false flag emails. I guess I would probably call them as opposed to spoofed, uh, trying to intimidate voters. Uh, we know like disinformation is a big topic. Uh, what else like might they actually try and do with it? To me, I, I mean, the disinformation is the topic I go to quite a bit, and I, I'm sure our listeners heard the interview with Nina Jankowicz. And if you know groups of people and their party affiliation, you know, one of the presumed uh, t things that these uh, disinformation groups are trying to do is not necessarily get someone to vote for, it's to polarize people on both extremes. To, to make it hard so people that normally might vote right you know there there's this idea whether it's true or not of undivided uh, independent undecided voters that could go either way but if you could get them really upset about a extreme polarizing issue you have a chance of getting those undecideds to maybe go one way emotionally. So I think it's that kind of polarization that's one thing. And I, having the voter registration information, if it has party affiliation, might give you some information, might give you email addresses you can use to target. Uh, I, I guess that's one guess. Uh, but the, the clear thing about disinformation is it's, it's mostly like... A, 
obviously one side of politics right now is associated somewhat with or, or is said to be associated with white supremacy. But I would assume the majority of people in that particular party are not racist at all. But if they can find a white supremacy group and get you know, people that aren't necessarily racist to start liking memes that they don't necessarily or know are associated with that white supremacy group. And then they can start getting more and more ideas from that white supremacy group, kind of the trickle out by, by extending the reach of this really small extreme voice. They can really polarize a group of people that is more moderate and center. And by the way, I used white supremacy as the first example, but it's the same for the opposite side, like Black Lives Matter. Uh, you know, there's people that honestly, good, moderately believe in that, although they don't think all cops are bad. But then there's could be extremist versions of that. And if you get and get that the extremist version is like the 0.1% is probably not very popular. But if the, the disinformation is about taking that existing really extremist idea that does exist among a very small group of people in our party and trying to popularize it by putting it in front of more eyes that are close to it, you know, adjacent to it. So just having the information about the people, what their parties are and stuff like that, I think it just helps with targeting these disinformation campaigns. And you mentioned like trying to convince potentially like undecided voters, but it doesn't even have to be about votes with disinformation. Like when it comes to a foreign body, especially a hostile one, like I would could probably consider Iran and Russia, uh, it's they don't necessarily even care who ends up winning. They just care about the country being at each other's throats and not being effective on the world stage, basically. If we're very polarized about these very internal issues, we're not paying attention to world trade. We're not paying as much attention to national policy in different countries that Russia or China may have interests in. So yes, it's just about making this extreme polarization. So as you say, we take the eye off the ball for these external interests that other countries may care deeply about. Yep. So past just voter registration data, like let's move on to actual potential vote modification. Uh, so last year, a bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee concluded that the election systems in all 50 U.S. states were targeted by Russia in 2016. Uh, they said that the activity against them was largely just in search of vulnerabilities and security uh, postures of the election systems. And there was no evidence that any votes were actually changed in actual voting machines, um, though uh, Russian cyber actors were in a position to delete or change voting data in at least one state's database. I think it was like Illinois or Iowa or something that starts with an I. Um, so what what are some of the concerns with vote voter registration modification? Like we obviously it, you need to be registered in order to vote. So if a foreign entity is able to go in and delete your registration, it basically means your vote potentially isn't counted if you don't catch it sooner. Or enough. you don't get to, you show up to, to, to vote and depending on how you do it, like in the mail-in, it wouldn't be counted, but showing up at the ballot, they simply wouldn't have you on the list of accepted voters. But yeah, I mean, it, it could come down to even voting machines themselves, physically changing the result you enter in. So... I, I think the 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 impact of of any sort of voting modification is when we have this electoral system, you know, popular vote doesn't really matter too much in our country, frankly, to be quite frank. it It matters only in specific states that that tend to have this electoral focus. So 
it I think you'll get into some research that that talks about how even small changes in votes may matter, especially if you do them in different states. I do think while all of there are technical concerns in different states with how they vote. There are digital voting machines that have had very specific vulnerabilities. But overall, I really don't think this is anything but a research target for external actors yet because I don't think they need to pull out this big gun. We've talked about it before that I think if you act, if anyone even could catch a altered digital vote if we did the type of response we would have as a country is probably much bigger than it is to just this disinformation which is kind of a passive type of attack uh, changing our vote is a much more active type of attack so while I, I think really what it comes down to is we'll talk about lots of ways it's technically possible but i actually just think it's unlikely as a strategy right now for other nation states so there was actually a recent research study by uh, some students at the university of michigan uh, where they simulated an election and they had people vote using electronic ballot marking devices basically you go up and hit a touch screen and then it spits out a marked up ballot for you to then turn into the poll worker um, and for the research study, it, for every single participant in this, they changed at least one vote on whatever they entered in the machine. So like uh, just randomly choosing one of them, flipped it to the other candidate, for example. And through the study, they found that only 40% of the voters actually reviewed their ballot after using the machine, and only 7% of them told the poll worker that something was wrong. So they concluded the research by saying, it's highly likely that if hackers change just one or two percent of votes at a single location in a close election, uh, it wouldn't be discovered, basically, because people don't review their paper ballots. Like you and I, we've talked a lot about having a paper trail is critical for an electronic voting system. Like it's theoretically OK to use a electronic system as long as there's a paper trail to back up after the fact if something has changed. But what happens if people don't actually bother to go check and see if their vote has been changed? Like if only 7% are noticing and actively stating something's wrong, that's a pretty big issue. My only question is that how did they change the vote? Like this is a study. And yes, I think the thing it shows is users, the actual users at the time of their vote aren't really paying attention to their if their ballot is marked in the way that they voted properly. But on the flip side, they they simulated the hack too, right? I, my question is, do real voting machines have some sort of logging on the quadrant of the touch screen you touched versus what showed up internally on the marking? So even if the voter is not uh, perceptive enough, I, I won't say they're idiots, but not perceptive enough to look at their ballot to check that it really marked what they thought, I wonder if there could be internal log systems that help these ballot machines at least go back and validate what what was pressed. Albeit, depending on how the hack, obviously, you know, if they can rewrite the logs or have root on the machine, you can change everything. But yeah, very interesting. It definitely shows that people aren't paying much attention themselves. So you need technical mechanisms, you know. And if you did go, if you didn't have those technical logs and the actual final ballot showed something different, then you'd only have the word of the person, you know, saying, hey, that's not really who I voted for, even though you see that in my paper backup. Yeah, their, their research study basically came down to like, let's picture a world where some foreign entity or at least some malicious entity had the ability to change votes one way or another on the machine between when you input 
and whatever is output. So it could be malware on it, could be like you said, root access, could be just a miscalibration or something. Uh, in that scenario, how likely would it be to be noticed uh, or at least reported? So it like it my takeaway was it's actually it's pretty damning. Like people uh, uh, don't check their boats. Although the flip of that is it only takes one person to notice. Like they say that the the damning part is forty percent of people didn't notice, but that means sixty percent of people did. And if one person noticed. Now you know there's something up with the machine and you can't trust the, you know what I mean? At that point, it would be watched. And even if the 40% still of voters still made the mistake, the people monitoring the machine should be catching it. You know what I mean? So to find out that it's a false ballot is happening, you only need one person. And then as soon as that happens, you have to recount all the other ones. That is entirely fair. Uh, and I at, like at this point we are literally just in hypothetical Christmas land on what exactly could happen. As is so, this study itself. <laughs> yeah, it's correct. simulated. Yes. <laughs> uh, but I think like you and I both agree that like hacking the voting machines themselves, if someone were to try and interview an election, is not the way to do it. Like that would basically like if if it were discovered, even if it was a small chance of being discovered, like that could literally be the start of war. And like as much as you think that we have a lot of discord in the country right now, one thing that really binds all of us together is getting really angry at someone else that's picked on us. And it tends to bind the whole country together and we would definitely retaliate. Yeah, I, I, I think it's possible. And I think as we move towards these digital mechanisms to count the vote, which I think is inevitable and we'll probably talk about in a moment. Uh, we definitely need to understand the vulnerabilities of the system. But for today's conversation, I just I, I think it's the I think it's politics in in market. You know, it, it's it's not the technical issues that is why this isn't being targeted. It's the political issues. You know, there's much easier things they're already doing that are having an effect. I mean, they're having a measured effect on the com country. The polarization is is empirically there, and you can tie it to real disinformation campaigns that have been discovered and looked at, and yet people are still becoming polarized because of them. So they don't even need to consider this right now. They can leave it in the back pocket. If they're probing our network for the future, that's something to think about. But I just don't I don't feel like they'll be using it this this election season. I would say the one caveat to that is in this election season, we have one candidate basically already setting the groundwork to claim voter fraud. So if they were to interfere with it, this would be the one. Because even if like they get called out, it would cause so much discord. <laughs> Except in this that, case, it's like, mail fraud. It's not even the digital hacks we're yes. talking about. <laughs> He's claiming that our US <laughs> post office doesn't do mail, right? Exactly. So anyway, let's move way, on. How, how like, long has Washington State been using mail and voting? I know it's for at least the past eight years, I feel like. Uh, Washington and Oregon have been using it for a very, very long time. They were two of the pioneers of mail-in voting, where basically everyone gets a mail ballot, and there's not been a whole lot of evidence of fraud in that regard. Um, but like when it comes to how you vote, though, uh, there is quite a bit of... Uh, uh, undecide, an, an indecision on whether we should do online voting or not. So online voting, it's been a pretty contentious topic, Like, but most security experts tend to write it off as just being impossible to secure. Um, that said, it hasn't stopped some states from rolling out online voting for different options. Like it was actually, I think it was 2002 or 2009, 
where the federal government required states to have some form of online voting for military personnel deployed overseas. Uh, just in the last few years, several states have started rolling it out to even domestic voters with disabilities who might have trouble voting on a paper ballot or even a voting machine, but like screen reading software um, and accessibility options for online voting make it a lot easier for them. Um, a lot of the stuff I've read on that is experts seem to think that these small groups are an acceptable risk because they still only account for a small percentage of ballots handled that way. But if we were to expand it to everyone, it would create a significantly larger risk. Like there was even a study we talked about on this podcast last year um, by some researchers at MIT that highlighted basically all the possible ways a threat actor could tamper with electronic voting with a one of the top three voting platforms. Now that research paper they put out, it was basically all like, uh, I don't want to say assumptions. It was all here's what could go wrong in these scenarios, not actual hard vulnerabilities they found, but basically them saying, well, if there was malware on the computer or if they were able to compromise the cloud services or if they're able to go after uh, you know, the database itself, here's all the things that could go wrong, not just actual hard evidence. So like, what is the real issue that's holding back online voting? Though? I think it's that a lot of the experts are wrong that it can't be done. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm just a contrarian asshole, but I, so first we should concede that I think we both believe that nothing can be 100% secure. 100% security doesn't exist anywhere, but secured good enough that you can use it is we do it every day. We we trust our most important classified national intelligence to encryption standards that big committees of cryptographers have come up with and have passed a bazillion tests. Amazon does billions of, you know, certainly tens to hundreds of millions a day, if not billions and billions a year of, of commerce with online payments. There's no reason you couldn't come up with a online voting standard that is not perfect, but actually has lots of fail safes and mechanisms to detect problems and only has a small percentage of risk in my opinion. I think one of the things that we're doing wrong, one of the real issues is you started by talking about some states. I don't think this needs, has, this should be a state. One of the biggest issues with our voting system, in my opinion, you know, I know there's state rights folks that like the fact that we really are a union of states and states should have some individual capabilities and individual rights of their own. But I think if you create an online voting system, at least for the presidential race, it has to be one, one simple standard. So set it over and over again that you have to have one standard, which on, on one hand, focused risk. That means there's only one thing the bad guys have to figure out. So yes, but the more important thing is every cryptographer, security expert, whatever in the world that wants to pub participate in the open source standard can poke at all the holes and the, you know it would take a decade worth of ideas being slapped down by other people showing holes to get to the thing that might work, but I think it could happen. So first of all, doing it state by state, doing anything but one online standard that's not public and open source, that is the issue. Until you get there, you're never gonna have online voting that works in my opinion. Besides that, I you know, you know the issues as much as I have. We Digital identity, even as a security company, even with remote workers, making sure Corey Knockreiner, when he logs on and says he's Corey Knockreiner, making sure it really is me, 
you have to solve that problem for sure very, very strongly before you let me vote online. So identity is definitely the issue. And I, why don't you throw out some others? <laughs> yeah, and so even globally, online voting has been pretty slow to roll out uh, because of some of those issues you mentioned. But like one country, Estonia, has launched their online voting back in 2005. They've used it every year since then. And as of last year, half of all their residents used online voting. And that's because they I don't want to say they've solved it, but they've got a little step forward in the digital identity where uh, government IDs are actually mandatory for all citizens. And the IDs have digital certificates that can help authenticate you over a computer and help at least uh, mitigate some of those risks when it comes to uh, identity theft. And has it been perfect and risk free? No. You might also remember Estonia was DDoSed by likely Russian state related actors because they have such digital infrastructure and they had to figure a way how to survive that DDoS and, and mitigate it in the future. And yet they're still doing online voting. They still are a very digital nation. You know, is there risk to it? Yeah. Although you mentioned the denial of service attacks are another issue when, you know, we just mentioned one of the biggest issues may not be changing your vote. It's kicking you out of registration so you can't vote. Well, the online version of that, if you can't actually get online to vote or if the, the services are being, you know, attacked, thus keeping you out, that, that could be an issue. But again, we this is an issue everyone deals with on the Internet every day for the tons of classified confidential information we've been using. Have people been hacked? Yes. But can you find a way to protect yourself most of the time? I think so. And even on the denial of service front, like there are companies out there like Cloudflare, for example, that are built to protect against denial of service attacks. And you would think they would be chomping at the bit to help protect a online voting system for the United States of America. That would be a pretty good feather in their cap. And that's just a content distribution network. You can also design network. You can design a solution with failover, with multiple mechanisms with you know what i mean so you can assume that that a denial of state to 25 percent of your infrastructure is going to happen and design the system to be ready for that so i i is it a easy problem no i i mentioned it could take a decade of a standards group to come up with something that passes all these security people's tests. But for security people to actually write it off as being impossible is, is silly to me. And that's where security gets a bad name to kill innovation. I think online voting, a standard of a digital vote, is kind of inevitable. It's the way the world is going. Uh, and it could be a huge boon to society. I mean, if you really care about the popular vote and you believe everyone in a country should vote, uh, it, it could be a fantastic thing. Is it going to be hard to do? Yes, but I think one single standard for the entire nation and one that has gone through an open source process the way encryption algorithms do, uh, you know, for all the aspects of it, identity, uh, availability, that's the way you come up with a system that will actually work. And I think one of the other things that's kind of holding it back is just the general lack of trust, at least in the United States, uh, of the government to both protect our data and to secure this data against potential interference. Like one of the reasons it works so well in Estonia is that their citizens trust their government. They have they're protected by uh, GDPR like laws with for privacy violations. They trust their government to keep their data safe. They know that they own their data. 
Uh, and that's not a thing that's in the United States right now, which causes a lot of people to have concerns over voting online. And yet again, I still throw out the cryptography as a great way to combat that. Like, we have cryptography groups that write the next encryption standards. The government's part of it. By the way, the government is one of the expert people that join these groups and weigh in with their stuff too. But it's public and it's open source and it's transparent and everyone can participate. So if the government is trying to hide something in the cipher, the other folks will figure it out. So I, I think you're right that, you know, while I don't necessarily distrust the government all the time, you do want to have multiple stakeholders and you can't just have this be a, a, a federal government body. It has to be a body of experts in the technology, experts in voting, experts in the government, all working together. And they, they become check, checks and balances on each other. Exactly. One of the things I have been seeing, uh, at least in my research for this, that does appear to be taking off is like kind of a hybrid model for online voting, uh, where you cast your ballots online, but then you print them out, sign them, and mail them in. And that would solve quite a few issues with uh, like that we see with polling places with like seven hour long lines. Um, but it isn't quite as expansive and as easy to use. It's just strictly online voting, too. But at least it's a paper backup that can't really be hacked. You know, the, the example we used in the simulation before was a digital system was actually filling out your paper ballot. In this case, you would be printing and in, in, in filling out the mail-in backup. So I, I really do like the hybrid model because I think we both know because there is risk of attack even on this imagined, perfect, transparent, standard, single system that the hybrid model really gives a backup mechanism to check yeah. it. So like coming up on time here, what are some things that you'd like to see changed when it comes to election security? Like, for example, you already hit on this one. Like I thought in order for online voting to take off or for us to gain confidence back in election security, uh, we really have to stop this whole every state for themselves thing. Like as it is right now, the Department of Homeland Security is charged with securing the elections but they do it by working with individual states and developing solutions for those individual states. There isn't some overarching like government, federal government approved voting system or voting registration system or anything like that. It's all state by state, which means that people potentially aren't learning from each other's mistakes, or at least it takes a lot longer for that to happen. So like, I think we would have to see, I don't know how that comes about. Like, I don't think it requires a constitutional amendment because I know Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon already tried to pass something that kind of mandates this. Um, but it would definitely take a act of congressional, like uh, federal Congress, in order to uh, make a change like this to require every state to have minimum security standards mandated by the Department of Homeland Security. Like, What, what about you? What would you think? Hey, well, we'll talk about other things, but I mean, I, you know, I want one federal voting standard, whether it's the DHS that mandates it or otherwise. I just think that, like you say, some congressional action needs to say we want to work towards a federal standard and I want government entities involved. I want individual states involved, but I want private and public experts, cryptographers security experts, technology experts involved as well, and make some sort of group similar to like a NIST for voting or whatever. So definitely agree with that. This information is another thing that we need to figure out. You know, uh, lots of things happening right now on Twitter and Facebook where 
They're blocking even some of the president's tweets if, if they consider them disinformation. It's a difficult question to see who, ha who is the entity that can block you from sharing something you want to share because that comes with censorship. But there are identified disinformation campaigns. There are identified meme pictures, identified articles where we know for a fact that a bot spread them and at the very least, I would like to see the, the folks, whether they're social media organizations or, or anywhere there's an article that might link to some disinformation, something we know that is generated, that it's at least tacked. You know, I, I, maybe we can't block everything because a lot of us don't believe in censorship. And we know to fight for anti-censorship, sometimes that means people that we disagree with get to say they're... they're you too, but I think we should heavily mark in some very big way, the same way we mark cigarette packets. The Surgeon General says this is going to kill you. We should mark this is a known disinformation campaign from Russian actors for anyone that shares yeah, it. Yeah, and you're right that like it is a pretty fine line between protecting against disinformation and potential censorship as well. And like what one person sees is fighting against that, and another person would see as censorship. And we've seen a lot of calls recently for revoking Article uh, 230 or whatever, uh, or Section 230 protections uh, for uh, websites, which basically allows them to moderate their content uh, without, uh, as they please without fear of being held liable for the stuff they allow through. And I will say that like, if you were to revoke that, that doesn't mean that they're going to stop moderating content. That means they're going to moderate it even more and basically block a whole lot more stuff because suddenly they're now liable for whatever shows up on their site. So I don't think that revoking that is the solution to this disinformation problem at all. No, I would just like, I would like to see the Surgeon General's warning, a really heavy marking, because to be frank, you know, there's some actor out there, some U.S. citizen that might know something is from Russia and disinformation, but it serves his purpose. So I could argue, even though I really hate it, that he has the right to share that he, but I want the people that read it not to go in thinking, oh, this is some normal content from someone I know. I should I should accept it as fact. I want that to at least be marked that, hey, the thing your your friend or the, this person is sharing is actually known XYZ disinformation. So marking to me is something they can do too. Although still on a, a pure volume level, do we require it? Like, is it a law to require that? Because then how... You you know there's there's tons of disinformation every day. Some of it's identified, some of it's not. So also making companies liable to market market as disinformation all the time may be a technical impossibility to do at scale. Yeah, like you have to imagine the number of tweets that go through Twitter every day. If they had to have someone like a human being reviewing them, like obviously we could probably use machine learning and AI to catch some of the obvious ones. But if you have to have a team of humans behind the scenes fact-checking every tweet, that does potentially become technologically infeasible to do. Yeah. But. It's a tough problem. I mean, if really, the true answer to this long-term is disinformation has always existed. The digital nature of our lives now makes it kind of higher scale and asymmetric. But ultimately, it's up to us <laughs> to use our own common sense and our own skepticism to actually figure some of this out ourselves. So I do put some of the onus on us as individuals to to have a skeptical mind. Like, I don't believe all news is fake news. I believe some of the hate against 
things that I think are good journalism is bad. On the flip side, whether it's a journalist or organization you like, one you don't like, whether it's a person you know or don't know on Facebook, you should look at everything with a little bit of a skeptical nature and validate it before accepting it. So some of it really falls onto our own shoulders too. Unfortunately, as I say that, the reality is I know so many people that just don't pay attention you know, when it falls onto your own shoulders, they don't do but it. But I think like to wrap things up, we're we're not super concerned about someone actually quote unquote hacking this election this year. Like the biggest threat, as we've talked about a few times on this podcast, uh, even recently, is the really the disinformation and sowing discord and mistrust and just hatred uh, as opposed to actually changing votes. Because like you said, it has been more effective and it is significantly less risky to the threat actor. And by the way, if I'm being very honest, even though we talked a lot about this from external threat actors and stuff like that, I strongly believe that even the Russian, Iran, China focus on election disinformation right now, our biggest issue this election is ourselves. It's us. It's our own organization. It's people in office that is actively sowing doubt in our election system. And if we sow doubt in our own system, you know, it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. We're already breaking it. So that is going to be the biggest problem this election. Yep. Agreed entirely. And if you are a U.S. citizen uh, and you do have the ability to vote, please go out and vote next week. Uh, really, that is the, the biggest thing we can do to combat a lot of this is basically just say, yeah, we see it, but we don't care. And we're going to we, go we, ahead and we trust it. And we trust on. it. And we're going to keep trying to use it until proven otherwise. Yep, exactly. Which, by the way, I dropped off my ballot in a lovely ballot box yesterday. While we do mail-in ballots, I prefer to actually go to a ballot box and enter it in. Yep, I'll be dropping mine off tomorrow, and uh, hopefully our, our listeners will have the opportunity to do their votes early or at least on voting day uh, whenever they can. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening. And you will hear from us next week. See you later, alligators. <laughs>